we all rise to read the scripture and maybe you can open your scripture to the book of Psalms, chapter 51. Psalm 51 reads, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin, if ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight. And so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I will give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Hi again, everyone, and welcome once again to this gathering of New Hope. Thanks, Tim, for reading the psalm to us. You know, the scriptures are God's words given to us. And they're given to us not just to inform us, but to transform us. So let's willingly receive what God has for us here in this psalm, Psalm 51. It's a song of repentance, you know. I know Tim didn't sing it. I wouldn't have sung it either. I'm not sure exactly how to sing it, but it is a song of repentance that shows us what it looks like to repent and thereby find forgiveness and freedom. Now the word repent may sound like a harsh word to some of us, like a kind of word we might want to avoid. But it's actually the, the word that Jesus began his ministry with. When Christ arrived in Galilee, his opening words were told in Mark 11, where, or Mark 1, where the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Our, our meek and gentle Savior led with the word repent. 
And he also paired it with this other word, believe, because they always go together, repentance and belief, as we'll see. To repent means to turn away from one thing and turn towards another thing. So when Jesus says, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand, he's telling us to stop building our own little kingdoms. Turn away from all that. Stop living in our own self-determined way. According to our own rules, our own strategies, our own values. And instead, live his way. Under his rule as king. And then when Jesus says, believe in the gospel, he's telling us to give up all of our own self-salvation strategies. What I mean by that is, is he's telling us to stop trying to justify ourselves. Stop trying to prove yourself. Stop trying to make a name for yourself. Instead, believe this wonderful news that salvation and significance and purpose and life are offered to you by God. The God who came as a meek and gentle Savior, who died in our place, who came to die and rise again and to assert his reign over all creation. So, so believing in the gospel involves turning away from our own uh, efforts to, to save ourselves, to rule ourselves, to live for ourselves. And this turning away is not something we do just once. In fact, living as a Christian, a follower of Jesus, involves the continued practice of repenting. That may sound exhausting, but I, I hope we'll see that, the, that, that it's not, actually. As someone famously wrote, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. Your whole life, a life of repentance. You see, this is what I believe he meant. To follow Jesus implies that we will keep turning back from everything that pulls us away from him, every disobedience to him every sin. But you see, repentance isn't just turning away from sin. At its core, it's turning to Jesus. I love how Pastor Ray Ortland puts it. He says, the message of repentance is not stop that. It's Jesus himself saying, come to me. Come to me. Now, some people believe that because Jesus died for us, repentance is now no longer necessary. So, so that, some would say, if you believe the gospel, then you no longer have to take your sin seriously. You no longer have to keep turning away from your sin. But if that's what you believe, you're not believing in the gospel that Jesus taught. And you're not viewing him as Savior and King. Instead, you're, you're using him to help you feel better about your sin. And Jesus won't play that game. He instead urges you and me to take the stuff that we've been trying to hide or the stuff that we've been trying to justify or downplay, and he says, lay it all before him. In other words, the gospel doesn't make repentance unnecessary. It makes repentance possible. The gospel gives us the someone to turn to. And the gospel gives us the power to turn to him. 
You can, you can confess your sin to God without fear of rejection. You can even confess those sins that you're most ashamed of, that you're afraid to mention to other people, or the sin you, you, you find yourself just indulging and hiding again and again and again. You can bring it all to him, and he will forgive you, and he will cleanse you, and he can bring you out from under that shame and that guilt that, that you've been trying to manage for so long. Maybe you've gotten used to living with shame and guilt. He wants to free you from that and guide you into a life that's, that's lived with joy and a good conscience before him. Psalm 51 is in the Bible because God wants a spirit of repentance to permeate our whole church. His church. Notice, notice the heading to this psalm. It says, to the choir master. This was a song for God's people to sing when they gathered. So, so let's let this be our song, New Hope. Let, let this psalm shape the way that, that we own up to our sin and abandon our sin to find freedom in our Savior again and again and again, you know, there's an important backstory to this psalm, Psalm 51. It's also in the heading there, if you read it. It says, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. David was a king, a king who abused his power to take a married woman who was not his wife. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 11. He impregnated that woman, Bathsheba. He tried hard to cover it up by a couple of different strategies. Eventually, he had her husband killed, murdered on a battlefield. And he tried to forget all of that and just go on with his life until God sent a prophet named Nathan to confront him. And Nathan told King David that the consequences for his sin would be heavy and and would actually extend for generations. And those words that Nathan spoke to David, God's words, drove David back to God. He had a turnaround, a repentance experience. In Psalm 51, King David is something like that, that younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son, if you remember that story that Jesus told. The younger brother who finally comes to realize his state. He's awakened to what he's done and the gravity of it, and he decides to go home. And he goes home hoping for mercy. And he goes home remorseful. And this psalm, this psalm, it breaks up naturally into five parts. I think you can notice it even as you look at it on the pages of the Bible, you can see how it's separated into five parts. But those five parts basically amount to this. It opens up with a personal plea. Then there's a humble confession. Then there's another personal plea. Then there's a vow. And then finally, there's a prayer for those who are hurt by David's sin. Let's look at that first part. It's in verses 1 and 2. It's a personal plea in verses 1 and 2. Feel free to to read aloud with me if you'd like. David says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, 
blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David's asking God for something he didn't merit. He's asking for mercy. And he's asking God not to deal with him the way he deserves, but instead to blot out his transgressions. It means erase my sin, delete it, delete all my rebellion from my record. And then he asks God to wash him and cleanse him because he realizes that his problem isn't just a record that's been stained, that he himself has been left defiled and dirty because of his sin. These are very big asks, aren't they? David is coming out of the gate asking for a lot. The reason he can ask for all this is because he knows and he believes something. He knows and believes that God is abundantly merciful. That God is not stingy with grace, but but he's generous. In fact, God has limitless supplies of mercy. And David knows that God's love is steadfast, he says. The Hebrew word there is hesed. It's it's a love that stays committed. It's a love that hasn't stopped no matter what David has done. You know, David was once a man called, he was once called a man after God's own heart. He longed to honor God and he longed to do God's will. But that had changed, hadn't it? He had strayed from that. He had rejected God's will. But although David had changed, he knew that God had not. And he knew that God's covenant with him, that he had made with him, would not change. Although David had strayed from his commitments, he knows that God never strays from his commitments. So he makes this plea based on what he knows about God's mercy and God's covenant hesed love. In the words of the prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Limitless supplies. David sees this. His sin was deep, profound, extensive, but not as extensive or profound as the resources of God's mercy and God's grace. And so he makes some big asks, some personal pleas. That's the basis for David's plea, and it's the the same basis on which we can come to God. But here's the difference between us and David. David lived around 1,000 years before Christ. Now, David certainly knew about God's mercy and love, but, but we have more reason to believe. We can know more and believe more than David did. Because for those of us who live now, after Christ has come, God's hesed love for us has a name. It's not just a vague idea, not that it was for David, but for us it can't be a vague idea. His hesed love and mercy have a name, and that name is Jesus. So we can bring all our guilt, we can bring all our shame, all our filth, and we can say, have mercy, O Lord, because Jesus died. Erase my record because Jesus took my rebellion to the cross. Wash me in the blood of my Savior. 
We can come to God and say, you dealt with him according to my sins. So now I plead. I plead in his name. His name, Jesus, who is God's mercy and God's hesed love in the flesh personified. Our confidence never has to be in in how sincere or thorough our repentance is. Because our repentance will never be sincere or thorough enough. It will never be perfect is the point. Like Tim Keller said, even our repentance needs repenting of. I think he's right. But we can put all of our confidence in this, in, in a God who is, who is who he is and what he has done. All our confidence goes away from the, 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 our abilities and turns towards his character and what he has done. His erasing is so much better than our hiding. His cleansing is so much better than our rationalizing. Oh, we like to hide and rationalize our sin. We like to justify ourselves. We like to blame shift. The healing, the cleansing, the erasing that God offers is so much better. The second part of the psalm is a humble confession. That's in verses 3 to 6. A humble confession. David writes in verse 3, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. You see, David's sin haunts him. He can't forget about it. No matter how hard he tries, he keeps thinking about it. Can you relate to that? In verse 4, he says, Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Notice that. That might give us pause. Against you only have I sinned? How about the woman Bathsheba? who's taken and used and abused? How about her husband, who's murdered? How about the, the other soldiers in David's army that died on that day that David sent Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, into battle to be killed strategically? He had sinned against all them, and he had sinned against more people than that. But, but here's the thing. David realizes something, that he and they, all his victims, They all belong to God. They were all made in God's image. So David realizes that his sin ultimately is against his creator, their creator. And David at this point has gone from thinking, how can I cover all this up? How can I cover my tracks to thinking, how could I have done this to my God and to his people? And when he says, so so that you may be justified in your words, he's admitting that the judgment that God uh, uh, declared against him through Nathan was right. He's saying, I have no excuse. I have no explanations. I have no defense, Lord. What you've said about me through Nathan is right. I agree with your verdict, God. And he goes on. In verse 5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin, in sin did my mother conceive me. This wasn't a single isolated slip-up by David. He's saying, look, if, if sometimes when we confess sin or we want to turn away from sin, we can be very measured about and try to draw the, the, the parameters, the boundaries around. Yes, I'm willing to admit that. 
I'm willing to turn away from that, but only that. That's all I'm fessing up to. But David knows this was an isolated slip-up. He says, if we're being honest, I've been a sinful man from the start. I've been sinful from the start. We've probably all heard confessions, public quote-unquote confessions from celebrities who get caught up in a scandal, and they meet with the press, or they issue a statement in which they say, look, I did some regrettable things, but that's not who I am. That's not the real me. In a sense, they're saying, I disappointed myself because that's not the real me that you saw or that you heard or that you saw that video footage of. We, you see, we so often, we want to distance ourselves from our failures, even while we admit them, which is so odd, isn't it? As if, as if those sins don't reveal what's really in our hearts. As if our words and actions aren't really a window into our character. I'm better than that. That, that was out of character for me. We don't see any of this from David here. Do you? He, he says, no, 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 God, I am deeply sinful. I always have been. And, and this recent sin, it, it just put all of my depravity on blast so that everyone could see it. In verse 6, he says, behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This king knew. He knew the difference between wrong and right. I think that's what he's getting at. God had taught him what is good and what is wise. So he says, I I can't claim ignorance. I, I, I clearly and willfully acted against what I knew to be righteous and what I knew to be wise. As we look at this section what we see is a full, unqualified confession with no hedging, no excuses. And this is what Jesus calls us to when he says repent. This is what Jesus calls us to when he says come back to me. This kind of confession. But it leads us to a question. Do, do you talk about your sin and talk about yourself in this way? The way David does, no holes barred, no hedging. You can, you know, and I can too. It's safe to do this. It's safe to drop all the defensiveness, all the self-justifying, because in mercy and hesed love, Christ died for us. And he knows full well how deeply depraved we were from the start. And he's committed to cleansing and forgiving, and transforming us. Before we move on, did, did you notice that David said in verse 4, I have done what is evil in your sight? This struck me when I saw that word because it made me think, how often do I think about my failures as evil? How often do you think about your failures as evil? Not just screw-ups. Again, we've all heard public figures uh, make, make confessions whether it's celebrity or politician or whatever, and, and they say things like this, I, I clearly exercised poor judgment. I made some bad mistakes. So I'm going to take some time to listen and learn, and, and I promise to do better. New Hope, because of the gospel, we don't have to use weak words to describe our failure. When we confess 
to God or we confess to others, we can use the words that God uses, like evil, wickedness, and sin. We've been freed to take those words because those words aren't reserved for uh, extraordinary cases. Those words describe even what you and I might think as a normal, everyday sin, like our lust that we struggle with or our angry outbursts or, or even that, that self-centeredness that, that seems to ignore the needs of others or the failure to speak truth and only truth or, or the the sharp criticism that some of us level at people, all those things, garden variety sins. David would say, and we can echo him, these are evil in your sight. I recently read a memoir by an author who fled from Iran with his mother when he was 12 years old, and he ended up in Oklahoma as a, as a refugee. And as a young refugee in Oklahoma, I'll show you the, the cover to the book here. He's, um, he struggled to adjust to life in this new place, his new home. And, and along the way, he was bullied and he was mistreated terribly. And it's a beautiful book. It's called Everything Sad is Untrue. It's by Daniel Nyeri. And I want to I read a passage to you. Allow me to do that, please. This passage where, where Daniel, his, his 12-year-old self, is reflecting on what really is it that makes someone bad? What is it that makes someone bad? And he says this, he writes these words, imagine you are evil. Not misunderstood, not sad, but evil. Imagine you have a heart that spends all day wanting more. Imagine your mind is a selfish room full of pride or pity. Imagine you're like Brandon Goff, that was one of his classmates. And you find poor kids in the halls, and you make fun of their clothes, and you flick their ears until they scream in pain and swing their arms, and you pin them down and break their fingers. Or you spit in his food in the cafeteria. Or you just call him things like cockroach and sand monkey. Imagine, now, and this is where it takes a turn, imagine you're evil and you don't do any of those things. But you're like Julie Jenkins. And you laugh and you laugh at everything that Brandon does. You even help when a teacher comes and asks, what's going on? And you say, oh, nothing's going on. And he believes you because you get A pluses in English. Or imagine you just watch all this. And you act like you're disgusted because you don't like meanness, but you don't do anything or tell anyone. Suddenly, evil isn't punching people or even hating them. Suddenly, it's all that stuff you've left undone. All the kindness you could have given, all the excuses you gave instead. Imagine that for a minute. Imagine what it means. New Hope, what if we're worse than we really think? Because our sin isn't just the wrong that we've done, it's also the good that we choose not to do. The kindness that we've held back. Because God is merciful, because Jesus is who he says he is, we can stop lying to ourselves about our goodness. 
We can abandon soft, comfortable words about our failures. There's freedom. There's actually freedom in naming our evil for what it is. The evil we've done and the good we've left undone. Being honest with himself freed David to plead with God again. To plead more boldly than he had at the beginning. That's part three. There's another personal plea from verse 7 down to verse 12. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He wants to experience happiness again. Sin did not deliver on its promises. It never does. It led to sadness and brokenness. Can you relate to that? Looking for happiness in something that doesn't deliver and only gives you brokenness and grief instead? David says, hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see, David doesn't just long for forgiveness. David wants to be made new. He wants a new spirit, a new way of living. He wants to be, he wants to be transformed. He doesn't want to repeat the same patterns again. He's tired of that. He doesn't want to keep giving in to the same evil impulses. And that needs to be our desire. Our desire needs to be radical change, renewal. In Matthew 3.8, John is baptizing people in a river. And as he's baptizing them, he's commanding them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, what, what John is saying is, Prove your repentance by living differently. That's the fruit. And that that fruit looks like a renewed way of life. That that fruit also involves making restitution wherever possible. Like Zacchaeus. Some of you remember the story of Zacchaeus in Luke 18. He said to Jesus, I will pay back everyone I scammed. When he said those words, Jesus didn't say, whoa, Zacchaeus, chill. You know, you're going a little overboard. Just try to be a better person. But full restitution, over and above even what you scammed people out of? No, what did Jesus say to Zacchaeus? Jesus said, today salvation has come to this house. How did Jesus know that salvation had come to this house? How did everyone who looked at Zacchaeus know, wow, something has changed here. Salvation has arrived for Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus' salvation was evidenced by a resolve to change direction and to make things right wherever possible. To repair. To make reparation. Verse 11 says, Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with me, uphold me with a willing spirit. David feared losing his nearness, God's nearness. You can see that here. God's, he, he's afraid that God is going to pull away from him. It's not that David could lose his salvation, but David still stood to lose a lot. He could lose God's blessing, God's intimacy, 
God's guiding presence in his life. God will not truly bless us while we hide our sin and refuse to abandon it. Not fully. We can get delusional about this. We, we, we can start to expect, we get so, it, our sin and our, our patterns of whether it's selfishness or anger or lust or whatever it is, it becomes so normal for us that we expect God to, to bless us and help us out even while we ignore and we disobey him. I remember pleading with a man who wanted God to guide and provide for him, even while he cheated on his wife and eventually abandoned her. And he's praying for God's blessing in the process. No, no, refusal to repent is a rejection of God. And frankly, if we continue down that path of willful unrepentance, we may end up proving that we never truly knew God or believe the gospel to, to begin with. Now, repentance leads to fruit. Repentance leads to fruit, the fruit of a, a renewed life, a, a change of direction. And then when there's failure again, as there will be, and there's sin again, once again we turn around. Once again we turn around. The fourth part of this psalm is a vow. Look at verses 13 and 17. David says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You see, we, we can't worship God sincerely when we're living with unconfessed sin that we continue to hold on to. Have you noticed that? How it sucks life out of your ability to worship God? And we can't minister to others sincerely when we're refusing to repent. Have you noticed that as well? We become less helpful to others when we're entrapped in our own sin. Sin, sin has a way of shaming us into silence. Like, you, you can't speak to that. You can't try to help that person. What kind of, you'd be a hypocrite to try. You'd be a hypocrite to sing songs of worship. And so instead of, in the moment, singing songs of worship to Christ as a, as a, as a way of walking out repentance, sometimes sin leads us to just shut down. I say, I can't say those words. I, I want to hide in the dark. But repentance opens up our mouths to worship God and to offer the gospel to other people, to care for people in Jesus' name. Repentance unleashes us to do that. And D David wants to do that. That's why he's vowing to do it here. Verse 16, he says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise Sacrifices and, and offerings were a vital part of Jewish life in the Old Testament. And, and they pointed ahead to the final sacrifice that Christ would offer on the cross. David isn't saying all those Old Testament sacrifices and offerings were meaningless. Who cares about them? No, he's not saying that. What he is saying is that if they were accompanied, if they were not accompanied by sorrow over sin 
and a resolve to change, then those sacrifices were useless. They were rendered pointless by a lack of repentance. And so in the same way for us, as, as, a, as professing Christians, if we're not serious about turning away from sin, we're saying with our lives that the cross doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. When we're casual about our sin, we're saying the sacrifice of Jesus was meaningless. But David is done being casual about his sin. He finally has realized, verse 17, that that it's a broken and contrite heart that God will not despise. And that's, that's not about beating yourself up and making yourself feel as bad as you can about your sin. No, it's not that. As as if God is going to forgive you depending on how uh, self-loathing you can be. It's not what he's talking about. What he is talking about is, is seeing our sin the way that God does. And when we do that, we're going to stop blowing it off. We're going to own up to it with broken hearts so that we can be cleansed, so that we can be unleashed to praise him and to serve others in his name. David ends this song of repentance with a prayer for those who were hurt by his sin. It's the very end, verses 18 and 19. Look at what he says. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This king's sin had damaged the whole nation. It hurt some people directly, of course, like Bathsheba and her husband. But, but the damage went further than that. God was dishonored in the nation because of him. The king's ability to govern the nation was compromised, and so people were more prone to experience injustice and unfairness because their king had been corrupted at heart. The sins of Old Testament kings affected even the worship of the people, and it brought calamity on the nation. His sins hurt people that he had never even met. And frankly, this is to some degree, how it works for anyone who's in a position of leadership, any kind of leadership. What, what if a pastor betrays trust? How, how does that affect the church? Or a father who's unfaithful to his wife and to God, how does that affect the household? For generations even. So David pleads on behalf of the, the community that he had damaged. He owns up to that. Some of you are leaders. Some of us are leaders, maybe in the workplace, or at church, or at home, on a team. But even if you're not a leader, you're, you're still connected to others, aren't you? And because you're connected, we're all connected to others, don't, don't think your, your private sin doesn't affect those people you're connected to. We, we, we need to reject the myth of victimless sin. There's no such thing. Our sin always hurts those that we are in covenant with, whether they notice it or not. It always damages the covenant communities that you belong to, whether that is your household or the church 
or workplace or team, wherever it is. Perhaps we can even, even blow that up and say our neighborhoods, our cities, our nations, somehow in ways that we can't truly measure are hurt by the personal choices that we make. Of course, it's more evident in those closer relationships, but don't imagine it's not there even in those more extended relationships. And like I said before, it can even extend beyond generations. Repentance, though, repentance rebuilds the walls of a community. It isn't just for your sake or my sake. Repentance is for the sake of those whom our failures have damaged, even when we don't see that damage. The Lord can rebuild the walls of your family. The Lord can rebuild the walls of your household, your relationships, our church. Those walls that, 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 that we have weakened or the walls that you've destroyed, God can rebuild and strengthen them. It's safe to say that we all have sins to deal with before God. We all have stuff to confess and abandon as we turn back to Jesus. Perhaps that's why David, in the body of the psalm itself, never states the specifics of his own failures. Perhaps it's so that we can fill in our specifics as we take the psalm and make it our own. So what sin, what failures, what evil is God leading you to fill in? What areas of neglect Are there patterns of thought, patterns of speech and and actions that that maybe you've been trying to ignore (laughs) or or habits and tendencies that that you've been trying to downplay or rationalize compared to others and say it's not that bad? It can look so different for so many of us. Perhaps for some of us it's just that that simple sin of neglect, that neglect of of ignoring God's grace and and as you chase satisfaction and and other stuff. What what specifics is God bringing to mind? Don't, Don't ignore, if he is bringing specifics to mind, don't ignore the convicting power of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and loves you. Rather, Let's own up and let's receive grace. In a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And this meal is, in fact, a standing invitation to Christians to begin the hard work of repentance again and again. There's a reason we do it regularly, because we need to turn away from what pulls us away from Christ and turn back to Christ again and again and again. This meal is a standing invitation to start the hard work of doing that. Because every time we come to this table, it's a chance to, to reflect and, and examine ourselves and to once again leave behind sin and come back to our Savior who, who offers us himself. So that when we eat and we drink these elements, we're saying with our bodies, I, I hear you, Jesus. I hear you call me back, Lord, and I, and I want all the cleansing and all the renewal and all the freedom that awaits me in you. And so I come again. Let's pray. Father, confront us in your mercy. 
Confront us in your said love. Awaken us to our sin, the evil we've done, and the good we've left undone. If we're hiding sin, Lord, reveal it. Reveal it. We'd rather be embarrassed in the moment than live with shame and guilt indefinitely. We'll take that embarrassment of having our sins revealed if it'll lead to freedom and happiness in you. If there are people we need to confess to and make reparations toward, give us the courage to do that. Give us the humility to do that. Do what you have to, Father, whatever you have to, to lead us to forgiveness and freedom according to your abundant mercy and your hesed love. In Jesus, our Savior, our our true and better King, we pray. Amen.